Welcome to the Trial Talks Podcast, a thought-provoking series surrounding clinical trial research. We'll be exploring current and future trends of the ever-changing clinical trial landscape as we discuss a variety of topics including virtual trials, patient centricity, novel and unique research, pandemic impact, and more. Join us and our expert guests on a journey through the evolution of clinical trials. Welcome to Trial Talks Season 2. This season is all about the heart of your trial, your patients. We'll be speaking with patient advocates, diversity experts, and hearing directly from some patients themselves in an effort to gain insight into how to improve the patient experience in clinical studies. Today, I am joined by Susan Stein, Director of Patient Advocacy with Agios Pharmaceuticals. Welcome, Susan. I'm so happy you are able to join us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you're so passionate about patient advocacy? Sure. First, I'd just like to say that I am here as Director of Patient Advocacy, but the I just have to give a little bit of a disclaimer that the views that I actually talk about today are my own and not necessarily those of my employer. In terms of my background, I've been in the field of pharmaceuticals and biotech for a very long time, um, for 25 plus years. And I've really worked a lot on, you know, what, what happens when people get sick and they get drugs. And years ago, I started trying to figure out, you know, wait a second, what happens to to patients and and why are they getting sick and and what's happening with access and reimbursement and a lot of things that really uh, were very interesting to me. So I went back and got my master's in public health at Drexel University and I learned a lot about patient access and why certain patients were getting sicker than others. And uh, I really became extremely involved in patient needs and the patient voice and patient insights and making sure that we were advancing patient care as part of our, our world in, in pharmaceutical and biotech uh, drug development. So that just got me a lot closer to patients. And the more that I learned about what was going on with patients and patient care, the more I wanted to know and the more that I wanted to help um, make it better for patients. So that's sort of what got me to patient advocacy at Agios. And what benefits have you seen clinical trials realize as a direct result of patient advocacy? So it's amazing to me that patients are just recently getting more and more of a voice at our research table. And I think we still have a long way to go, but I do think that the patient advocates and the patient advocacy groups out there are really becoming much more vocal and are training patients to be better partners at the research table. So there's a saying in patient advocacy that says nothing about us without us. And that really just goes to say that if you really want to know what's happening with patients, then you just need to ask them. And for so many years, we relied on other stakeholders to give us information about patients. And it really doesn't make any sense when you talk about it. I mean, that would not happen really in in any other research at all. You'd always go to the primary source to get information. But for so long, we didn't do that. And patients are a critical stakeholder. And so anytime you're involving a key opinion leader from a physician side, we should be involving a patient key opinion leader as well, and patient advocacy groups because they do represent the community. So with clinical trials, you know, it's not just something that is a nice to by involving patients and patient insight, but really it's good business. So 
with clinical trials, there's so it's a very expensive proposition, as you all know. There's a lot of moving parts, and there's so many things that can go wrong. And a lot of times, we can really make a much more streamlined approach by just finding out patients' needs up front in anything from trial design and protocol development to what they want to wear for wearables or how to get better recruitment or how to make sure that our inclusion exclusion criteria is really sufficient or better endpoints and clinically meaningful endpoints. So anytime that you're involving patients and patient advocates, I think you're going to get a better clinical trial. I love that tagline, Susan. Nothing about us without us. That's great. And you touched on this briefly in your answer just now regarding protocol development, but I'm curious, what is your process when you're assisting in the development of a clinical trial protocol from a patient advocacy standpoint? So a lot of times drug developers bring in patients later on, you know, when they want to go to marketing, but the real time to bring them in is early on as early as you possibly can and as often as you possibly can. So there's a lot of anecdotal stories that I could probably tell you on on ways where scientists have not done that and clinical trials have really taken a long time to accrue. So, for example, I mentioned about wearables. You know, sometimes there are wearables that are good for patients and sometimes there are wearables that are not so good for patients or sometimes patients are used to wearing a certain wearable and if the clinical trial depends upon something different, they may not want to be part of that trial. Or, you know, sometimes we forget about how brave you have to be to enter a clinical trial and how much of a burden it is on patients to enter a clinical trial. And I think we always need to remember that and really understand the patient perspective on clinical trials. So, For example, some patients might have to drive four hours to get to a clinical trial site and then back four hours for maybe a hour appointment. And that's fine for some patients, but it's not fine for all patients. There are patients who can't do that because they have a job and they can't be docked that sort of pay or they have kids at home and they don't have childcare for that. So when we're having those appointments that may be really far away for patients, we really need to understand and get everything that we need to get done, get done. So I had a patient that actually told us that she was in her 50s. As part of her clinical trial, she needed to get a pregnancy test. That was just part of the criteria. And she did have to drive four hours and four hours back. And she got a call as soon as she got back to her house to say, oh, we forgot to give you a pregnancy test. We did everything else that we were supposed to do, but forgot to give you that pregnancy test. And because of the way the clinical trial was written, she had to go back four hours and take the pregnancy test and come back again four hours. And for her, it was fine because she um, didn't have a job that she needed to be at and she wasn't paid by the hour and she didn't have kids that she needed to worry about. But for some people, that would be really quite a burden. So I think that anytime you can get patients involved early on within that development process and the more information that you understand, the better that you can uh, put together a meaningful trial. Yeah, Susan, um, one of my very dear friends has MS, and it's been such a journey kind of going through that with her over the last 20 years, but she's been participating in clinical trials, especially with COVID last year, and even now continuing like what that is like for her. She's in a clinical trial, and Susan, this won't surprise you, but the way the protocol was written, because she couldn't go for her treatment she was going to have to terminate. They were going to terminate her because she was no, you know, like she'd gone too long between treatments. And, you know, 
it was, it was a real, it was a bummer. Um, so, I mean, she's back engaged, I guess. And now she is kind of, she's able to go, but, um, it's stuff like that that you don't even think about. Like, and depending on, you know, if the treatment is really efficacious and making a difference for people, like that's the impact COVID had, like she wasn't able to get the treatment that she was getting on this clinical trial. So yeah, it's really hard. And I do think that there's so many things that, that will change and I hope will become more accessible for clinical trials in the future. I, I love your perspective on that. And I'm so glad that, you know, you're bringing that voice to the table when you're thinking about clinical trial protocol development. So you work a lot in oncology and rare disease. Would you say that these two therapeutic areas are more inclined to incorporate the patient's voice than others? And if so, why? I do think that oncology and rare disease include the patient voice a lot. And there's reasons for that. One is because, especially in a rare disease, there's very little information and very little history on the disease. And the only way to really get that is to go through the patient. So it makes sense to bring the patients into their world very often. And then the same thing with oncology, especially with all the targeted therapies, but that's not to say that that's, those are the only two areas that really reap the benefit of getting patients insight in early and often. And I think that any time, you know, going back to what we were saying before, any time you want to get patient insight, the only way to really do that is through the patient. And so sometimes people will say, well, we know what a patient's thinking because we speak to physicians on a regular basis and they tell us. Well, that's not the case. If you're listening to physicians, that's great. That can give you one lens. But really, if you want to understand what patients are going through, you need to go to the source. And so many times uh, we make these assumptions about patients that aren't really true. And specifically on things like overall survival or cure. And we always assume that everybody wants to get to cure in a clinical trial, but that's not really always the case. Of course, people want that, and that that would be fantastic, but we all know that that's not happening as much as we'd like to see it. But what people really want um, really depends on them, and they can tell you different things that they're really looking for. Like, it may just be important for somebody to be self-sufficient and to be able to live in a way that they don't have to rely on others. Or it may be really important to have a child be able to pack their backpack in the morning and not have to rely or to feed themselves in the morning. So you find out all of these secondary endpoints that are very important for quality of life. That's such a great point, Susan. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's really important to highlight it isn't just always about cure, right? It's about quality of life and in and helping patients improve their quality of life through finding, you know, drugs that can help people in that way. So I just, I really appreciate your point on that. Um, Do you see patient advocacy as an avenue to increase diversity in clinical trials? Yes, I do. I think that patient advocacy groups are really important in our ecosystem. They do an amazing job and they're run by angels uh, that are fighting the fight for everyone right now. And they take a really good holistic look at at health and wellness and what does that look like for patients. And we have to, to do a better job about diversity in clinical trials because we really need to make the clinical trials look like the people that we are serving. And we are not serving a homogeneous group. We're serving a very diverse group. And we need to make clinical trial participation look like that. 
However, there are reasons that there's a lack of diversity in clinical trials, and there's too many of them for me to actually name. But there's a lot of, of talk right now, um, ASCO, ACCC, BIO, a lot of people are really taking a good hard look at diversity in clinical trials. Um, they have been for years, and then this year even more so, it's become more important due to COVID. But I do think that that it's going to be the patient advocacy groups that force that and really help a diverse set of patients be able to get into clinical trials, whether it's through education or financial assistance or any of the other ways that they can help. I think that that's going to be the groups that are going to be pushing that for years to come. And I hope that at some point that we have clinical trials that are diverse and they look like all of the patients that we, that we are here to serve. So your company has clearly made a statement by having a patient advocacy director as yourself and a team. So they've clearly made a stance around patient advocacy. Do you believe that more pharmaceutical and biotech companies will increase engagements with patient advocates, whether it's externally or or having actual divisions and teams within their companies? So Christina, that's such a great question. You know, right now, patient centricity is such a buzzword that's used by so many people within this industry. And it'll be in every corporate presentation that you'll see at every financial conference. But I do think that there are some that really believe it and it's part of their DNA. And I think that there's some that just sort of have a checkbox. And I hope that more and more people really make it ingrained into their organization and that's really what my job is, is to make sure, well, it's a, it's a number of things, but one of the areas of my job, which is really important and very fun, is to really make sure that every time people internally are talking about stakeholders, that it includes a patient as a stakeholder, that we are having protocols being looked at by patient advisory groups and being signed off and being looked at from a patient perspective. And once you do that, then you really do have patient centricity. But just to, you know, kind of talk about it and say it is really easy to really bring it into your organization and make sure that everybody's thinking that way is a lot harder. And I think that that I, in particular, the company that I work for does a fantastic job for the, with that. And there are many others that also do a great job. And then there are others that just sort of talk and don't really support that. And I'm hoping that that changes. Related to this, Susan, has COVID had an impact on this engagement with patient advocates or patient advocacy groups, either in a positive or negative way? I think like so many things, we're going to really take a look at this. Uh, and be studying this for for many, many years of the impact of what COVID has had. I think there's some real immediate impacts that have been great, like obviously telemedicine, and that's been a good one, but you have to have policies to support that if we want to move that forward. So, and what I mean by policies are, are sort of reimbursement. So if physicians can't get reimbursed for telemedicine, then, you know, it's going to be hard to get them to really embrace that as part of their culture. So I think that there are some things with COVID that have been very um, open from from a policy standpoint, and it'll be interesting to see what happens later. As we all know, policies take a lot of time to change. So I'm hoping that we can see some of the ones that really are more patient-centric change. So for example, with telemedicine in, in particular, let's talk about clinical trials. So with clinical trials, you know, sometimes you have to go to a major institution, let's just say in a, in a major metropolitan city like San Francisco or Philadelphia or New York. And 
in order to go to that appointment, you have to drive, you have to take off a lot of time, you have to get child care, you have to park, which can be pretty significant in a major metropolitan city. And there's a lot of things that you have to get done that may be easily done with one telemedicine call that you can do from your home. So I, I'm hoping that some of these things will change, but I do think that policies will have to change with it, including policies surrounding clinical trials. Well, Susan, this has been such a great conversation. I have one question left for you, but it's on a personal level. I'd love to know what you're missing most as a result of COVID. Easy, travel. I miss traveling so much. And I also really miss my parents. I haven't seen them in a year and I cannot wait to see them. They live in Florida. I live in Philadelphia. So um, I can't wait to see them too once they get their second vaccine. And I, I'm, I'm going to find the two. I'm going to go travel and, and see my parents. So I think that's a good thing. But I think we're all missing and itching to get, get out a little bit and, uh, and be able to see the world a bit. Thanks, Susan. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Trial Talks. To delve deeper into the insights and information you heard today, visit us at trialtalks.com. 